Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Abir, welcome. I, uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, we, I've met a lot of artists that are Bengali through Bengalis in New York. Um, and I haven't met too many, uh, quote unquote executives or people that work for record labels. And how, why do you think that is? Do you, have you come across other Bengalis in the industry? Um, honestly, not that many. There's, I've recently connected with a few. There's a rap group named uh, Panga Bangla, if you're familiar with them. But, um, I, uh, they, their manager, uh, Ralph and I connected recently and it was kind of this moment of being like, he lives in LA and I live in New York and we were just kind of like, wow, there's not so many Bengali people in the world. I've, I feel like even with just Brown people in, in general, it, it, yeah. there's not a lot, but where, where there are, I think people try to like be supportive of one of each, one, one another, but it is, it's an interesting world. You know, there's not, there's not so many of us for sure. It's very underrepresented. And I think that, I mean, for me, I, I had a journey where I was an artist when I was younger. And then I went into the music industry after college. Um, so that's kind of like my trajectory. And it was, I was always interested in the business side of it, I think, because I always felt like I had no choice. But if I was dedicating myself to music, I had to make it somehow. So I had to like yeah. figure out all the different pathways to to do it well in, in some way, shape, or form. What sort of uh, artist were you? Were you a, uh, did you play an instrument or were you just sing? <clears throat> yeah, I, I played an instrument. I was a songwriter and, and uh, I played guitar in a band called The Morning Of. Okay. So it was like an emo pop rock band. So I played bass in, in the band and I wrote all the, I wrote all the lyrics and stuff. You, you grew up in Brooklyn, right? No, I grew up in Newburgh, New York. So an hour oh, north okay. of the city. Yep. Okay. Um, how did you get into rock? You know, I, I, I never, I, I never, I still, you know, I wasn't exposed to rock. Growing up in Brooklyn, it was just like all hip hop, hip hop. I think recently I'm like kind of venturing out in terms of my music taste, but how did you get into rock? I mean, I think I, I honestly listened to all types of music. It just yeah. happened to be that that was, I, I grew up in a, in a, like, I guess a lot of my friends were in, into like punk and, and emo and, and stuff like that. And it was kind of like the, it was, it was what drew me, I think initially. A lot of the, the punk and emo stuff drew me because it had a lot of, like, I was really into Nirvana. And then I was from Nirvana, it, it stemmed into like learning about what influenced them. And I think I, I got really into more of like the Ramones and like earlier punk stuff. And it kind of just, you know, um, there was like a lot of like New York mystique to it too. Like the Ramones were such a, I thought, big part of like the history of New York. And, and I, had like these big dreams that I would play CBGBs one day. And I was like, mm. I thought it was this like crazy venue. And then when I did finally get to play it, it was so small and <laughs> uh, very interesting. But it was, it was still like a, a great moment. But yeah, that was like a big part of my, I guess, like growing up. Was, I, I think just being around people who are into it. I, I love hip hop too. I feel like growing up, it was always strange because I felt like I had so many of my friends were into hip hop and then I was into just everything. And I think it was mm. hard for people to understand. That, yeah. that I can like everything. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Jay Z uh, Lincoln Park uh, collaboration was like a huge, like sort of like you know commingling of art, art, artists. Uh, yeah, that was like a moment where it was like Eureka, like everyone could agree yeah. on one thing, right? For for a yeah. moment, there was no division, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of that is the is the record labels that you know intentionally kind of like segregate artists so that like there's more money to be made, right? Or what do you think? Um, I think that. 
I have a, so I'm coming from like the, the label perspective. I think that labels don't always want to box things in, but they have to put something in a box because it's mm-hmm. easier to sell that way. You know, I yeah. think that that's, so I, I think that I'd love to like, I love thinking that things are genreless. I like thinking my taste is genreless, but when I look at artists, I, even if they are blending genres, I have to take the, the strongest part of that just to make sure it comes out because I do have to, a lot of it, this selling the artist to the general public. So I think I, I do have to make sure they, I don't want them to fit neatly in a box, but I want them to fit in a lane so that I can make the case for them to belong there. So, you know, I started off the conversation about, you know, representation and lack of in the music on the business side. Now, I'm just curious. I think I talked to a lot of artists and their families, Bengali families are not supportive of them pursuing music. But you're, well, at least now you're, you're in music, but you're on the business side. So are, are your, is your family a little bit more supportive of that? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think especially being Bengali, I'm sure it goes without saying like, the pressures that we, we face in terms of where we're supposed to end up. Um, I like to think my parents were, my dad passed away earlier this year, so I'll probably make references to, to him a lot. Um, my parents are, my dad is very much, as long as you're successful at what you're going to do, whatever you do, you have to do it really, really well. And that was his main thing. I know he always wanted me to be a doctor <laughs> and, and he, he was a doctor. And I feel like that was like mm. what his thing was. For always and I think even towards the end you'd be like you know like you can do this you can do that and so you know it, it always centered around that but I think my parents were not they, they were much more it felt like when I was growing up I'm trying to say it the right way while still being respectful they definitely weren't happy with how invested in music I was music was like my life from age 13 and to like and now right it hasn't changed but I think that they I keep looking at other Bengali parents that I've been around and I think that I was able to get away with it because my parents like deep in their hearts were okay with me like following my dreams kind of thing. And, and so I, I was really lucky that even if that's not what they wanted for me, they still supported me w- when they had to, you know, they probably weren't, um, you know, they weren't lining up to make sure this is what I was doing with my life, but w- when they needed to support me, they did, you know, and I was really fortunate that, they are open-minded enough to, to do that. Sorry about your dad. Um, was he musically inclined as well? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, thank you. Um, my dad was very much, um, he was a very studious uh, doctor. <laughs> Everything kind of revolved around being a doctor. He, he worked a lot. He, he read a lot. And, you know, um, so I think that that was, um, that was my, my dad's thing. Was I think his favorite thing in the world was, was being a doctor. <laughs> I, well, you were also pre-law, right? You, you, you were going to go to law school. So that was, yeah. that's, how did that happen? So I basically decided that I am not good at math. <laughs> so I, I, <laughs> I chose a, a path that, I mean, I was in a signed band and, and I knew how important co- contracts and, and just attorneys are in general in, in the music industry. So I thought that would be my, my avenue in. And then Basically, when I, when I finished school, one of my friends asked me to just come work for him. And, and he, he was working at a company called Crush Music. And, and they manage a lot of really big artists. And so I, uh, I went there and, and got to learn the music publishing side of the industry from him. And it made me kind of fall in love with writers and producers and, and putting people in different places and, and the creative process of a song 
from its inception and, and getting that out to the world. And so that kind of just became what I wanted to do after, <laughs> afterwards. Speaking of publishing, I read an article today about the manager, I think Scooter something, Scooter Libby, he, he, he sold Taylor Swift's Peter Braun. publishing. Yeah, Peter Braun, sorry, sold his, her publishing for like $300 million. Which like which is an obscene figure. Yeah, so that's actually not her publishing. That would be her oh. her masters. So he okay. sold. Uh, yeah, he he purchased the label Big Machine that owned her masters for like something like three hundred thirty million dollars, and then sold her, her portion of that catalog for three hundred million dollars. So he effectively bought basically a a really successful record label, and then turned it around and sold one part of it, and just you know oh. basically kept. <laughs> the rest of it, which is an immense like amount of money that he probably made off that deal. It's like private equity. They basically basically bought a company and split it up, and then he sold. <laughs> Do you, as an artist, get frustrated with with uh, sort of uh, how transactional some of this stuff has become? I think I I tread a very middle line. I think that I like to think that my biggest strength is that I'm able to see both sides, and I'm able to understand what a company needs to do to to make money, and then I'm also able to understand how to relay that to the artist. Because I think there are ways for, I think in any industry, there's ways for everyone to win, you know? I, I, and I think that what happens a lot of times is like the, you know, like people want to own their, their IP, obviously. Like, I think there's, it's, it's a tough one. Because I think that people are given something, like that's why they call it an advance, right? You're given an advance yeah. for the label to own the property. So when you're when you're getting a certain amount of money up front, I feel like, and, and the amount of money a label invests, like if they're doing a lot of investment in you, I feel like they should have that share in it. But yeah, I think that every, every deal is different and it's really up to artists to, to be vocal about what they're comfortable with and what they're not. And I think that yeah. one of the approaches I take when I, when I sign an artist is like asking them what they actually want and what they need, what their pain points are and how like, we can fit into that picture versus like, how do we just take this product from them? And so you're already speaking of your artists. So explain, uh, from what I understand, Quadio focuses on college students, right? Yeah. So we're basically billed as the college creative network. So the purpose of it is basically for other, for college creatives to basically find each other. Um, our, one of our co-founders, he, he was an econ major, I think. And basically he, he, beca- he was a producer and he always struggled to find people to collaborate with, to find vocalists and stuff. Then his last semester at college, he took a songwriting class and met all these amazing vocalists and songwriters and was like, wow, like, where were you hiding on campus? And he was, you know, he realized that it was like hard for people to find each other in the creative space sometimes when you're not specifically in that program. So he wanted to create this network. And, and what's been great about it so far is just people in general are always looking for collaborators. I think that the younger generation is so open-minded and I think they're, they're always looking to work on their art with other people. And and hopefully we're we're giving them the tools to open those doors and you know be able to find one another. What's your role at Quadio? So I'm the vice president at Quadio, and I basically do a lot of the music industry facing stuff. So we we recently established a record label in partnership with Disruptor and Sony. So I spearheaded wow. that. Um, we're doing some initiatives to add free distribution for all the artists that are on Quadio. Um, we have a lot of creative clubs where I think this fall we did a songwriting club. We're doing like a production club. So we're just doing a lot of community building. Um, 
we're trying to do a lot of educational initiatives too, because I think sometimes people enter into these things. And I think that artists and, and people who want to be artists, like sometimes they don't have all the, the necessary tools. It's kind of like the wild, wild west out there. Like you can go to college for the music industry, but it changes so fast that, you know, by the time you're out, things have changed, right? So you have to adapt really quick. So I'm just trying to, we're trying to figure out a bunch of systems to make sure that all these artists have like the tools necessary to like learn how to do it the right way. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to blow up and be the biggest artist, but I want to give everyone like the ability to feel like they're able to do it the right way. Cause I think that's very important. Yeah. I mean, we, we come, I come across a lot of Bengali artists and, uh, you know, we have a somewhat of a network. So they ask us to share it. And I, you know, it's interesting because sometimes I see, uh, it's some really talented people send us stuff. And I'm like, wow, how are you, you know, not big? And then I see other people that are like, you know, gigantic. And I, I mean, in my opinion, they're not, a, they're not as talented as some of these people that are sending us stuff. So I'm, you know, I, I'm always curious about what it takes. I mean, what it takes is a really broad question, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think it, there's a lot of factors at play. I think that, I mean, what goes without saying is I think first and foremost is you do have to put in the work. You have to, like, you have to treat everything kind of like a, you have to have the talent and, and have like the work ethic to really get after it. I think that people people kind of look at things like, oh, like I think a lot of artists they make it look easy, but it doesn't mean it is easy, or it doesn't mean you know. And I, and I think that that's one part of it. I mean, there's there's always instances where there's luck, but really a lot of it is knocking down doors and, and getting people to care about your art, right? Yeah. Are you into music in Bangladesh at all? Do you keep in touch with any of the scene there? Uh, I don't. I, I try t- from time to time to like find like to listen to Bengali music and stuff like that. But to be honest, it's really something that I, I wish I, I I grew up like playing the the harmonium and stuff like that. Oh, cool. And I feel like once uh once I stopped playing that, I really lost a lot of that that connection. You know, I, yeah. I think that it's been one of those things. I think growing up in in, in music and then in the music industry, I've definitely felt in a lot of ways, sometimes very disconnected from like a lot of aspects of Bengali culture or like, and to be honest, like sometimes I, I never felt like properly like accepted in, in certain places, you know, um, because of that. So I, I think that sometimes it, it, it became hard. I think the older I've gotten, the more I, I start to really care and want to like reach yeah. out and, and keep up with like some of the people I grew up with. But, you know, it, I think it was like when I was, you know, when everyone's going off to like, college i was touring with my band and stuff like that mm. so you know i go and then i come home and i go to like you know you go to a dawat or something like that and like you know it's looked at like this kid didn't go to college at first like kind of thing like you know there was like there was a perception that i i never quite enjoyed and and uh i think i've gotten over it <laughs> now that I'm, I'm much older and and i think that uh you know i it, it's very different i think because i've i've been able to do what i've what i have like in the industry um, over yeah. the years, but I, I think that it is like I feel like you know sometimes when you're you're doing different things, people look at you differently, and I never felt comfortable in, in that regard. And you know, it's it's funny because like I I really do care so much about like my Bengali roots in like a lot of ways. Like I you know I my mom and I generally only speak in in Bangla, and you know like I, I try to do as much research. Like right now, I think with I'm trying to start like tracking like where my dad's family moved and stuff like that over the, over the how, years. Oh wow. How are you doing that? Um, just basically asking questions to my family. And then, you know, it's funny with, with, you know, one uncle tells you one thing and then the other one tells you something different. So, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. trying to like try yeah. to keep the story straight. So, yeah, yeah. um, yeah, 
uh, thankfully on my mom's side, I have like my mom's one brother has done a really good job of creating like a family tree. And there's, there's so many people in the family because like my mom's on the 10. And so like he has everyone laid out and all my cousins and their kids. And it's, it's really cool. So that was like a, that's a really cool thing to see. And I don't have that on my, my dad's side. So I'm, I'm trying to like be the one who like, I'm trying to like, track that down i guess so i have it. that's a really cool project let me let me, let me know how that how that turns out yeah, yeah we'll see yeah i mean one thing that you said so many of the things that you said resonated with me because i mean i think similar to me people think because i run this bengali of new york platform that i'm super into bengali but actually this platform's actually allowed me to become really um close to my roots and i think it's similar to you like a lot you know when when you're younger and you know, you're in school, you kind of, you kind of run away from it, you know, cause it's not the cool thing to do is like, you know, talk about your, how, you know, what you eat or your culture. But now that we're older, like you realize how rich it is and how cool it is. Yeah. It's like this, you know, Hispanic, uh, you know, Spanish people, I mean, Hispanics, they just, just so proud of their roots, even from a younger age. And I, and I, even from a younger age, I always feel like I, there's, 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 I, I hate that we're not taught to be like that from a younger age. And, I actually, and I feel like this Boboni has, I feel like tr- tries to do that at least, like younger kids that are in school, like, look, our stuff is cool. Like our food is amazing. Like some of our traditions are really cool. I mean, um, our language is beautiful. Like there's just so many things that are really cool. And I wish like I thought of it that way when I was younger, you know, like I do now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the same. I, I honestly, like it, it's really important. I think, I know it's, it's not, it's easier said than done, but it's important for us for me at least, and I think for people to be like proud, like American Bengalis, I think in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, cause I think for me, it's, I think especially with my dad passing, it's become more important to me. Cause I just think of like how he came from Chittagong and, you know, he came to America and he became a doctor here and he went to Vanderbilt and he went to like, you know, he did such an amazing thing and he created, you know, this whole life for my family here. And he brought so many like other like amazing Bengali Americans over to this country who are all doing amazing things. And it's just like kind of like an incredible thing that like, it's just hard to fathom. Cause I, I think in my head, how easy it is for me. Like I, I, my struggle was that I wanted to play music and didn't want to do what my dad told me to do. And like his struggle is like, how does he create this beautiful life for this family? And then I, I got to, I got to be creative and do all, all these interesting things because he did all of that you know, yeah. ahead of that. And I, and I think that that's so much of that is like also a part of like Bengali people, like they have such a great work ethic and they have such a like love for their family in terms of like what they, they do. And I think that's like a, a generalization of my like comfortable making and maybe they're not always showing it <laughs> the right way. But um, I think, I think it's like a really important thing, you know? Yeah. I think the impact that you just said is incredibly difficult to fathom, but also just like to quantify, imagine what you just said about your dad, the people that he brought over, um, and then maybe the people that they bought over or the money that they're sending back to Bangladesh, like, and there's yeah, other people like your dad too, like that quantifying that, I would love to somehow be able to do that. That's honestly, to me, that's like, that's fascinating. I mean, how many people's lives, like there's like a trickle down effect from your dad just bringing people over or sponsoring somebody or sending money back home. I find that stuff fascinating. Yeah. And I think like all, like, I think it's such a part of like the, the great American story, right? The immigrants coming, doing well for themselves, creating opportunities for others, creating jobs, you know, like there's just so many, like so many things like that. And maybe like because of the recent election, it's highlighted to me so much, like how much like those people are the backbone of like what this is. Like I think of like, when I think of like what made me like proud to be 
both Bengali and American. It was my dad. You know, he was really into yeah. politics his, his whole life. And like, he just really cared about picking the people who like cared the most about providing opportunity to people who might not have it. And, and I think about how hard that must have been for anyone coming from Bangladesh, whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, right? Just like coming to America, because I feel like it's such a different thing, you know, here. Yeah, absolutely. Where is your family now? Are they still in upstate? Uh, yeah, my mom lives in Newburgh, New York still. Um, my sister lives in Brooklyn, um, and my wife and I live in Ridgewood. So, yeah, we're, we're Brooklyn still in has, Brooklyn has a, has a you know, neighborhood. I grew up in, in Kensington. It's like little Bangladesh. And uh, you know, what you were saying earlier is exactly what happened, because I, I was dying to leave there. did not want to be in that neighborhood, because it was just like little Bangladesh. <laughs> after i left i, I you know and I, now it's like i, I miss it so much um yeah I'm just, I'm just dying to go back and every time i go back it's like larger and larger and and it's just such a beautiful sight yeah it's kind of crazy because i mean that's i i grew up like when i first moved to new york i feel like we'd come to the city and it was just you go straight to jackson heights and, and i thought new york city when i was younger was just jackson heights and I was like, yeah, <laughs> not so wild about it. But now it's like funny because for a while I was like, I never want to go there. It's like, and then I, I love going there. I have like such good memories going there with my, my parents and just being around. And you know, my wife is uh, Irish, German, and white, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better um, way of explaining it. And she, you know, like taking her to Jackson Heights, like she gets to see a lot of that culture and like being, getting to go around with my parents and stuff. She's gotten to see just like so much more than, you know, like, I could impart to her, but it's like crazy that we can just do that in a train right away within New York. Um, what, so going back to the music piece, what would, what sort of what advice would you have for a new artist that's trying to, you know, get a name for themselves right now? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's like one thing that I tell every artist and it's, you know, you want to keep creating. That's, that's the first part of it, right? You can't, you can't stop. You have to be hungry and you have to be teachable. Those are like the two most important parts, I think, of being an artist that people forget, I think, because they, they kind of stand, I think, it, no matter what you do in life, you have to be, you have to be hungry and teachable. I think that that's like, for me, like, that's the one lesson I try to impart to everybody. Um, the other thing I, I would say is, you know, take, you want to identify, no matter how small you are, you probably have 10 people who really care about you, you know, and, and really care about your art. And it's like, you want to service those 10 people and get them to like, to love that experience of like being your fan so much and your friend that they bring 10 more people in and then they bring 10 more. And it's like, it's the tell all your friends approach, I guess. And, and I think that that's really important and it's how loyal, strong fan bases are, are built, you know? So, you know, like someone can sit there and tell me like, I don't know, I only have like 10 fans and say, okay, great. Do those 10 people care about you? Then awesome. Like do stuff for them, like interact with them, make sure that they feel loved and noticed, you know, in, in the way that they're loving your music. And then you, and those 10 people are going to go tell someone else about that experience of being your fan and, and what you're doing with your art. I think that that's like a, a, a process of development that I think is, is tried and true, regardless of Spotify algorithms or anything like mm -hmm. that. Keep making pe like people telling each other about stuff they care about is, is the most important thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's like when your friend tells you to go check something out, like, that's the biggest cosine, right? So yeah. I, I think that, that people get stuck in all these other things. And, and it really is. It's like, you want to keep creating and, and, and keep servicing your, your 10 fans and turning them into 20.
that's like the, the best, I think, advice I can give to anybody starting out. So like be uh, platform agnostic, just keep creating content uh, is what you're saying. I mean, there's so many tools, right? Do you have a preference around which platform? I mean, you know, YouTube's there, TikTok is new, Instagram's still there. Like, do you have any preference? I think you want to have a balance of all of it. I think, you know, obviously in the last two years, TikTok has become one of the biggest discovery tools for new music. And, and I think that I, I hear from some people being like, I don't believe in TikTok. Or, and it's like, well, you might have been the same person being like, I, I don't believe in Spotify. They don't pay out as much, right? And it's like, yeah. just because it's maybe not your favorite thing or, or this or that, like, you got to put the work in in, in all of these, these spaces, right? I think it, that's like, people, people forget that. And I, I think that's, um, people, what people don't realize is like being an artist, like if you want to take it seriously, even if you have another job or something, like you do have to treat it like a, a full-time job. You have to like put the work in and you know, that means like if you don't like TikTok, then spend your Saturday making a bunch of TikToks and then roll them out over the next like few weeks mm. so that you have them, right? Um, if, you, if you're not a big Instagram person, cool. Take some photos and schedule posts ahead of time, mm. right? Um, yeah, I think those are like my, my, my things about that stuff. I think that, you know, you want to like make sure like so much of like mu the music industry is it's the lottery. So like what we always say is that like, you know, you like, if you don't buy a ticket, you don't have a chance to, to win, right? So you have to buy all these different tickets and, and you need to be in all these places because you need to at least have a shot of catching on somewhere. But so you're an artist still, right? You're still uh, playing music yourself outside of your day job? Um, not always I, I made a record maybe a year ago um and then um my, my my old band the morning of we talk about doing last time we, re, we did reunion shows we did something at webster hall in like 2013 i think mm. um but uh i'm not really sure um if i would identify as an artist i think like at my heart i'll always be an artist but i think uh i, I wouldn't say i'm an active artist right now but yeah do you think the the business side of being an artist turned you off? Does it turn you off? I don't think so. I, I think that for me, I think my, I think what happened is that I think as I got older, I had less that I really wanted to say. I think oh, that wow. um, emotionally, I think I had like things, I think when you're young, when I was younger, when things happened to me, it felt, they felt really big. And I feel like now there's, when you get older, you feel like there's so much bigger things. And I think for me as a writer, it becomes very difficult for me to, to say that, hey, my thing is more important than this other thing. And I think that's what's kept me from writing a lot or as much as I used to, that things don't feel as, as, it feels like what I'm saying isn't as important as what else is going on in the world. Maybe that happens with getting older and feeling like the world, it needs a lot more help, you know, and, mm. you know. But I think that the other side to that, um, sorry not to go on about this, but um, I think I, my motivations also changed. Like to me, like it's really important to help people get sustainable careers in, in music. And I think so many people focus on like the stars and stuff. And I think there's a bunch of that's great. You want to shoot for shoot for the stars for sure. But there's this like amazing middle like of like creators and creatives that are doing really well making good money, being able to create art every day. And I think that for me, a passion of mine has been like, like just working with people and getting them to have sustainable careers and having sustained success over a period of time so you can mm. continue making music. And that's like, that, that really is like my, my biggest passion is, is providing pathways for people to get to do this. Cause it, it feels like 
being an artist is such a blessing and it's such a hard thing to like make a living at. And I want to be able to figure out ways to, to help people get there. Yeah. So, so for like the, you know, there's the Webster halls, but there's probably small venues that artists play at all the time that they can make a, uh, a stable living. Yeah. I mean, if you really going back to those 10 people that love you, if you yeah. start growing that 10 to a hundred to a thousand to, you know, 10,000, like people can have sustainable careers. If like they have a group of people and you can tour a few times a year and these people come to see you, you know, you don't have to be Taylor Swift. Like it, there's, there's a lot of people in the middle with like really amazing fan bases that, that are doing really well. This is a really stupid question, but is there some sort of union just like there is for like actors? Um, there, a lot of music, music people are in SAG-AFTRA as well. Oh, um, okay. there's not, there's unions, I think for like touring, um, uh, crew people and stuff, but, mm. um, yeah, I think it's shared with them. So, yeah. Okay. I remember, uh, there was this YouTuber that I was a big fan of. Her name was Kina Granis. She's like, she's a singer. She's, you know, I remember I used to follow her and she didn't have a huge audience on YouTube anyway, but I was a big fan and my wife knew I was a big fan. And she got me tickets to see her. Um, but the line was massive, <laughs> you know? And I was just like, whoa, I thought it was like, you know, I found this great artist that, you know, I could support. But no, it was like thousands of people. So, and it wasn't a, it was a, it was a decent sized venue. So what you just said maybe reminded me of that. And, she, and I don't see her stuff anywhere, like on made radio or anywhere, but she sells these medium sized venues out. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you're a fan, you care. So I'm sure if you, if she popped back up next year, I'm sure you'd be like, Oh yeah, I'll check it out again. Right. And yeah. that's what happens when you have like a, a, a loyal fan base. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, going on with Quadio? Like what's uh, what's some of the stuff that's that you guys are doing now? Yeah. So interestingly enough, we, <laughs> we rolled out our platform as the pandemic started. So we had to kind of put a pause on our go to market strategy, which has been super, uh, interesting um but what's been great is we launched in beta in march and and, and we have over thirteen thousand artists on the platform now and it's given us a lot of time to learn about their behaviors because i think as much as like you can do research and stuff nothing is better than seeing it in like, actual practice and how they interact and behave on a platform so basically right now we're we're working on updating the platform to make sure that we have room for all types of creatives and not just just musicians. Right now, it's definitely geared towards you know, streaming and, and just musicians. But we want to make it like a, a place where if you're a videographer, if you're a graphic designer, if you're, you know, even if you're a UI UX, like, or like that you can show your creativity and, and be able to connect with others. And maybe it's like, like this one artist needs a videographer and a creative director. <clears throat> and they can build their team within Quadio and and meet one another, get feedback. We're we're adding uh, mentor profiles as well, so we'll have a lot of like we started a, a professional series, and it's where I basically interview music industry veterans. So I had uh, my friend Dave Renee, who's Zed's manager, come on, and we did one. We had uh, Wyclef John and his manager Madeline oh. come on recently. We have uh, this guy Adam Alpert, who's the Chainsmokers manager. He's going to come on next month, and so we're creating just a place for people like we're just like kind of taking all the things that we've learned and creating like a better version of it so that hopefully by the time it's like it's perfect that 
people are going back to college campuses in a safe way and we're able to really have a, a good rollout, I guess. So you said 14,000 members. Um, so on the website, there was only about, there were about four or five uh, mem- uh, artists that were in the artist section. So, so how does that work? What's the business specifically problem? Quadio Records. So that's our uh, record label. So okay. basically, we launched the record label in partnership with uh, Sony Records, with Disruptor mm-hmm. and Sony Records. And the record label is our way of like, kind of like supporting the best of the best of, co- of emerging college talent. So that is my, it's funny because I feel like that part of it is my, is what's probably the most traditional of like what my previous experience in life has been at record labels is us having this record label, but it is, it's still different because we're really championing emerging artists. Like we do sign some artists based off data points, but a lot of it is just like, wow, this artist is amazing and they need a platform and they need support. What are some trends you're seeing in the music industry? I mean, during this pandemic, it's been kind of unreal. Like you going back to talking about how Taylor Swift catalog was bought. There's a lot of private equity money being thrown around in catalog acquisitions. Mm. And it's kind of crazy that, you know, like these, these classic artists, like the value of classic catalogs, I feel like is just mm. insane. And, and the amount of money that people are throwing around at these assets, is, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, and that's like something I haven't seen really. It's, it's a new strategy. I think that, um, there's this one company called the hypnosis songs fund and they bought like, they spent, I think like $2 billion in the last like two years or something buying like the catalog of like major artists. And it, it's kind of unreal seeing that value because like, you know, I, I think people don't realize how much value there is in writing an amazing song. And, you know, that's, that's something that I think lasts forever. And, and people now more than ever are realizing that, you know, like it's almost like funny because it's like we're in a pandemic and touring disappeared. So that's an entire component of the music industry that's disappeared. And then all of a sudden the focus fell on the value of a song, you know, and a record. And that's like kind of crazy. You mentioned earlier, and I, 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 I said something correctly about the masters and publishing. Can you explain to, I guess an up and coming artist with the difference, what, what having your master's means um, and how that relates to have owning your publishing. Yeah, for sure. So there's two parts to basically when you, when you put a song online or back in the day when you'd sell it at a store, right? There's the composition and the underlying composition is what a writer would get. That's what the writer owns. So if I wrote a song, I own a hundred percent of that composition, right? That's my composition. And say I write the song and you perform it and create a master recording of it. So then I would have the, the composition would belong to me, but that master recording is yours. So mm. all the writing, all the publishing money, all the publishing income would go to me as the writer and mm. you as the master rights holder, you would get the money for the master right. So if somebody, let's say, if I own the masters, um, not the publishing, if somebody wanted to use uh, or make a remix of the song who would get who would be paid was it the master's owner or the publishing so um can you if someone wanted to make a remix of a song that yeah of the song that was created yeah so remixes are kind of a funny territory so technically you are creating if you're using components of the original song 
then the master owner would still own that part, and okay. the person who wrote the composition would still own the part of the comp. Would still okay. I got you. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I was watching uh, Jimmy Fallon the other night, or a video of it, and he was mm-hmm. saying somebody was on, and he was saying uh, he was talking about a song, and and the guest was like, "Oh, why don't you play it?" And Jimmy was like, "No, no, no, we can't afford it." So I think so. That's that. So that would probably be publishing. Like they would have to pay the publisher so, for that. Yes. Um, there's in sync licensing. So if like going back to that song, if he were to play it, then yeah, they would have to pay just the publisher for that. Okay. But like in terms of when you hear a song in a commercial, uh, or sorry, it's basically like they give a fee for, it's called like both sides. So you pay mm. like a thousand dollars to the master owner and a thousand dollars to the publisher. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a revenue stream that I would not even think of like some <laughs> late night, you know, band playing my song. You know, that's yeah. fascinating. I mean, there's tons of writers and producers who's they, they make a living off just writing music for sync pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Sorry about the stupid questions. It's, it's no, interesting. I, there, I find no, a, there's never a stupid question and I hope I answered it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure you did. Uh, and like I said, we have a lot of artists that follow us and we support, we had a talent show a few, like two months ago. Oh, no that's way. amazing yeah we had it and the guy the kid that won he's bengali he's saying he has a band he tours i'll introduce nice. you he's really good yeah I, I would love to to meet him that, that's yeah awesome. stone um and uh did really well we had a lot of submissions some some of the people were really talented it's really it made me really proud um as someone that has zero music talent but i, I think uh it's really great to see but anything else um you have going on that you want people to know about um, I mean, not really. I, I would say that I think that, you know, there's, um, yeah, if they want to check out the music from Quadio Records, that, that's cool. Um, hopefully, uh, if they follow me on Instagram, they can find out as more stuff comes from the Quadio launch. And yeah. Great. Yeah. We'll obviously put you or tag you and people can find your music too. Um, great. Great having you yeah. on. I uh, hope you come back when you have other stuff going on. Yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Gotta be honest With diamonds and pearls Yeah, yeah Bengalis in New York All over the world uh, It's the bony show uh, Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs Where the bangles live From the slang we spit To the gangs we with It doesn't matter We the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs Where the bangles live